Coming up today on Episode 3 of the ELB Podcast, Larry Lessig for President, the campaign finance reformer considers throwing his hat in the ring and proposing being president only long enough to pass a package of election reforms. What does Lessig believe about campaign finance? What other changes would he make in how we run our elections? Is his campaign strategy sound, given other reformers who have blasted his tactics? Larry Lessig joins us for a frank conversation about Lessig for president. Larry Lessig, bold campaign reformer or Don Quixote? Welcome to episode three of the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassan of UC Irvine and the Election Law blog. My guest today is Professor Lawrence Lessig, who is the Roy L. Furman Professor of Law at Harvard Law School and Director of the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard University. Prior to rejoining the Harvard faculty, he was a professor at Stanford Law School, where he founded that school's Center for Internet and Society. Uh, he has a very illustrious uh, career. Uh, you can read all about uh, him at the Harvard Law School website or uh, at his uh, website for his exploration for president, lessigforpresident.com. Thanks for joining us, Larry. Great to be here, Rick. Thanks for having me. There's been so much talk about uh, whether uh, your exploration of a run for president is a good strategy or not, and, and many of your natural allies have attacked you, and I want to discuss that. But I don't want this discussion to be all about strategy and tactics. I, I want to first talk about substance, about your ideas. So I was hoping you could begin just by briefly explaining for our listeners, uh, how did you become a campaign finance reformer? What was the path to develop what one of my colleagues once referred to as your almost religious fervor on this topic? How, how did you get to this place today? Yeah, so so as you know, for many years I worked on internet and copyright policy issues. And in that field, I also became something of an activist um, when I began to think that uh, I was a lawyer with a guilty conscience because I felt like the lawyers were intervening in the development of the internet and weakening uh, its potential. And I felt somebody, oh, I wanted to join the many other people who are, you know, doing fantastic work to try to strike a better balance. Um, but in about, uh, I guess, 2007, um, uh, a young friend of mine, a kid named Aaron Swartz, came to me and um, I was in Berlin that summer, that, that winter, and uh, very proud of uh, the book I was just finishing called Remix, which was going to be, uh, turns out, the last book I wrote about uh, copyright policy. Um, and uh, Aaron said to me, so why do you think you're going to be able to achieve anything uh, uh, so long as we have this corrupted system of government? And I, I said to him, you know, Aaron, it's not my field, a little bit depressed by him not being excited by my new book. Um, and he said, yeah, I, I get it's not your field a, a, as an academic, but as a citizen. Is it your field as a citizen? And, and you know, it was that, it was that moment when um, I, I kind of had a, mo uh, I had a, 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 a recognition that um, he was right. Uh, he was right that, you know, we weren't going to make serious progress on that field or any other important field, climate change, the debt. Uh, um, we didn't have, we weren't talking about Wall Street reform back then. Would have been, regardless um, uh, of you know the issue, we were we were uh, we were not going to make progress until we dealt with this more 
fundamental issue. And and that night, he and I decided. Um, I said I would give up my work on copyright and the internet, and I would uh, I would uh, that fall. He and I and Joe Trippi started an organization called Change Congress, which uh, began the first reform work that I was doing in this field. Well, let's talk a little more about the problem, uh, the problem of money in U.S. politics as you see it, and your theory of dependence corruption. Now, you and I have gone back and forth on whether it's really an equality theory or not. Um, I think that's probably less interesting to most people uh, who are listening to this than what the fundamental problem is. So regardless of the, of the uh, nomenclature, uh, what is the problem of money in politics uh, that you see today? Well, I actually think the equality nomenclature is very important, so I want to get to it. Um, but, but you're right. I started uh, by understanding the problem in a very particular way. Um, you know, I, I teach, I, you know, ever since I began teaching, I teach constitutional law and constitutional history. And my understanding of what the framers were trying to establish through what they call a representative democracy um, was a mixed form of government that would have at least one branch that would be, as Madison put it, quote, dependent on the people alone. And dependence was a very important concept for uh, uh, the framers and Jane Austen writing around the same time, like the whole idea of how you have independent actors who are properly dependent and not improperly dependent was like how they thought of the world. So when Madison uses the word dependent on the people alone, that's not a throwaway. That's very important. Dependent draws their sustenance and check from the people and alone, meaning there's no other influence that would be, that would be driving them. Um, but as you know, anybody looking at the way we fund campaigns recognizes, what instead we've evolved is a system where even if they're dependent on the people, they're also dependent on funders of campaigns. Um, you know, the, the analogy that's most compelling to me these days is to think about the parallel with the white primary in the South, um, um, you know, uh, where, you know, the, by law, in 1923, Texas, other states did the same thing, but Texas said only whites could vote in the Democratic primary. Um, so you could say everybody had the right to vote in the general election, but uh, actually candidates were dependent on whites differently from how they were dependent on blacks because whites determined whether they could, in fact, be candidates. Um, well, I think that's the same system we've set up for funding campaigns. It was a money primary, or you could call it a green primary, where to be able to be elected, you've got to raise enough money to be credible. Um, but you're not raising money from everybody. Uh, you're raising money from the tiniest fraction of the 1%. And so that dependence on a group which is not representative, which is not representative of additional and conflicting dependence. And so that's why I called it dependence corruption. Um, and I think the Supreme Court should recognize it as a flavor of corruption that they would allow Congress to try to remedy because at least the conservatives, the originalists on that court, should see this is exactly the kind of corruption that they were most obsessed with. Um, but whether you think of the framers would have thought about it or not, it is a distinct kind of corruption that I think um, we should at least have the power to remedy. And um, for much of my work here, uh, you know, that was my focus. How do we see it as corruption? But, you know, once you see it like that, especially when you see it through the lens of the white primary, it's also obviously a corruption because it's denying a basic equality of citizenship. Like, blacks were denied equal right to participate in the elections in Texas because they were excluded from this critical first stage. Um, and so, too, are, you know, 99.98% of us excluded effectively from 
this critical first stage of the green primary. We are unequal. We are second class citizens in this democracy. And that and that violation of that equality um, is, I think, the way to understand the corruption of the system. And so this is a sense of which I, you know, in this book that I, the revised edition of Republic Gloss, I acknowledge, you know, your work very centrally as getting me to see um, how it ties to equality and it can tie to equality and both be equality, a problem of equality, but also a problem of corruption. Yeah, that, that brings me to my uh, questions about your platform. So when you announced your platform, I was surprised to see that campaign finance reform was not its sole focus. Instead, you have a three-part platform. I'm going to read a bit from the Lessig for President website about the Citizens Equality Act, which is the cornerstone of your campaign. You say the Citizens Equality Act of 2000. 17 is a package of reforms designed to restore citizen equality. It guarantees the freedom to vote, ends partisan gerrymandering, and funds campaigns in a way that would give us a Congress free to lead. Each part is uh, drawn from existing proposals for reform. We're not reinventing the wheel. So I wanted you to talk a little bit more about these other issues, the voting war type issues and the fair representation issues. What do you believe here? Do you see the country ideally moving towards alternative voting systems, which could be more like a proportional representation system? And should it matter that these are not issues that have been your passion for the last seven or eight years? Uh, maybe your thinking here is going to evolve more substantially as you uh, delve into these issues more deeply. Well, I mean, what, you know, when I came to this point of recognizing, you know, what you've been patiently trying to get me to see and others too, about how this is actually related to equality. Uh, and we, you know, I was thinking about the way in which we should respond. Um, it seemed to me we should, you know, bundle together uh, some core reforms that have been proposed that would also reinforce the sense of uh, equal representation or equal citizenship. Um, and I wanted to build a big idea around equality, equality of citizens, which would distinguish that equality from other conceptions of equality, which I also, you know, support, like, you know, dealing with the wealth inequality is an important idea. For me, but it's not an idea which I think should be a, is as universally agreed upon as you know framing the representative democracy as equal citizens would be. Um, so, so the idea was let's have a campaign around a big equality idea that, if we actually won on that equality idea, would crack the dynamic of corruption in the way Washington works. Um, because it would um, weaken um, some of the most important corrupting dependencies in the way Washington works. Um, and so it would both be a chance to unify a, uh, you know, the nation around an idea that we all should be agreeing on, and it obviously resonates with all sorts of other um, flavors of the equality fight um, that are going on right now in you know, American culture, the um, Black Lives uh, Matter uh, movement. Um, is you know obviously directly tied to this conception of second class citizenship uh, and and you know to the extent we see this equality as a way of de uh, of removing second class citizenship at least with respect to political equality that uh, I think that complements that movement so you know if you're going to run a presidential campaign you've got to do it in a way that can embrace and uh, and um, and, and motivate a substantial movement. And, and so I didn't see any reason uh, to limit to, you know, what, what I think is often thought of as a very um, esoteric or um, narrow question, which is just the question of how do you fund campaigns? 
And on the question of a partisan gerrymandering and proportional representation? Yeah, so um, so the core one is changing the way we fund campaigns. Number two uh, is um, uh, trying to achieve equal um, representation. Um, you know, I've been struck as reading, uh, reading about this in a number of different contexts um, with the kind of perverse way we've allowed our representative system to develop, to deny um, meaningful representation to huge sections of the American public. So, you know, if 90 seats in the United States Congress are competitive, House of Representatives are competitive, that means 345 seats are not competitive, which means the minority in 345 seats has no real reason, no real sense of representation by their congressmen because congressman has no real need to worry about that minority since that minority is never going to matter, make a difference. Um, I think we, you know, that's not an acceptable standard. I think we need to have a standard that tries to get us to a place where um, we could have uh, um, uh, as, as, uh, as fair a representation as we could have. And that might involve, you know, in the fair vote uh, proposal um, that um, um, I've pointed to and they are about to release their statutory language um, it would involve, in many contexts, multi-member districts. It would involve different ways of uh, dealing with winner-take-all uh, elections. But all of it would be towards this aim, this objective of trying to achieve um, equality uh, in representation. And the final one, you know, one that you know obviously should be the easiest, but for partisan reasons is the hardest, um, is just to end the stupid ways in which we make it hard for people to participate by um, ending the, um, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, discrimination in fact, uh, that's brought about by voting uh, IDs, uh, moving, as Bernie Sanders has called for, moving the election day to a holiday or at least uh, making it much, much easier for us to bring about um, fair and equal opportunity to vote. And, and, uh, and that, too, would obviously have an impact on equality. But all of them work to the common aim of making it so, as a citizen, one felt confident that my power in the, de in the democracy was the same as yours. Well, one of the points you make in Republic Lost, and I've, I've only read the original version, uh, I'm not sure if things have changed, uh, is that campaign finance reform is an issue that can unite left and right. And you point to Tea Partiers' concerns of crony capitalism, and I think you give them a, a lot of credit for, for raising these issues. Yet by raising these other equality concerns, do you uh, run the risk of alienating some of the, those on the right who might be your natural allies on this question of, uh, of, of reform, of campaign finance reform? You know, I don't know, but I don't think necessarily so, because it's why I think, you know, talking about it at the level of citizen equality is so important. Um, you remember when Tom Perkins, about a year and a half ago, said that he thought he should have as many votes as dollars in taxes that he paid. Um, and my reaction to that was, I think you do, Tom Perkins. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, the rest of America's reaction was, that was outrageous. That's an outrageous idea. Um, and, and it kind of cued for me the really, you know, obvious point that it's hard to imagine the argument on the other side. I, I, it's not that I, it's hard to imagine why people want the system, you know, to be unequal. You know, I get why Republicans want to make it hard for blacks to vote because blacks are primarily Democrats in these districts and that makes it easier for them to win the elections. I get that. But at the level of of principle, um, it's hard to imagine them rallying to the idea of inequality of citizens. So, uh, whereas inside the Beltway, I'm sure the Republicans would be furious with this, and you know the political elite and you know the rest of America would be um, uh, anxious and, and frustrated with this. 
Um, I, I think we, you know, I actually have hope for the debate at the level of, um, you know, the popular culture recognizing what's at stake and, and taking a side. And, you know, if, if somebody wants to stand up and defend unequal citizens, uh, make my day. I mean, that's exactly the kind of debate I think we should have, as distinct from somebody standing up and defending the idea of unequal wealth. You know, I mean, again, I have a view closer to Bernie's on that, but, you know, I grew up in the center of Pennsylvania. I understand what people's view about equality is when it comes to wealth. And so I don't, I don't actually think that's a uniting debate. I think the one I want to have is. All right, well, let's turn now to from, from substance to the campaign itself. Uh, as I understand it, your immediate goal, assuming you reach your fundraising thresholds of a million dollars by Labor Day, is to poll 1% so that you can ra raise these issues with other candidates by being included in Democratic debates. So is your campaign or your potential campaign mostly about putting campaign finance more on the national agenda? Well, I think of it more like this. I'm, I'm not running as a stunt, and I'm not running... Um, expecting there's no chance I could ever uh, be the nominee. And uh, if I were the nominee, I actually think I would win. So I, this is not, not true. This is not you know, a setup in that sense. But I do think that the consolation prize of being able to be in the debates is itself worth whatever cost this imposes. Um, and that's because um, if done right, I think bringing this issue into the debate could actually rally the Democratic Party around this issue. Um, so that so that means, you know, in the debate, I've got to answer every question in the terms of what's the right answer for every policy. But, you know, I can frame that answer by saying, you know, here's what I think the right answer is. But here's why we can't get the right answer, given the way, you know, we're funding campaigns. And, and you know, um, with enough uh, preparation, there's an obvious uh, link that we can draw to almost every issue um, some issues, you know, it's going to be harder to see the direct link. So what do you do about ISIS um, um, uh, isn't an obvious connection to uh, the way we fund campaigns. Um, but, you know, my point is, is not the simplistic point that everything is this. It's just that so much is this uh, that we can't actually get anything substantial done. So we ought to be addressing this and getting it resolved as soon as we possibly can. Now, some of uh, what I would consider to be your natural allies have, have attacked you for running this campaign. Tom Mann, a longtime campaign finance reformer at the Brookings Institution, wrote a piece recently where he wrote, quote, the hubris of the Harvard professor is breathtaking. In virtually every respect, his strategy is absurd. Lessig's political reform agenda is stymied by Republicans, not Democrats. Why not direct his energies where the opposition resides? And Stephen Rosenfeld of Alternate attacked you for allying yourself with Donald Trump's statements about the role of money in politics. He writes, quote, are people who want to see a fundamental restructuring of the interplay between private money and political candidates supposed to ignore Trump's racism, sexism, elitism, and warmongering just because Trump has been bombastically telling Americans that he's invested and gotten results from politicians and that it's a broken system? So I wanted to give you a chance to respond to these critiques. And I'll, I'll point out that uh, I just learned that you do have a uh, a written response to Tom Mann, which is posted at the Huffington Post and on Medium. Yeah, so, and I also have a, a response to Stephen. I think Stephen's point, you know, was very fair, but um, uh, fair in response to something I actually didn't say. So uh, the political quote is correct. Um, I did say, I promise, uh, here's something I'll promise, that um, um, if Donald Trump would run as a referendum candidate, I would link up with him. You know, I did say that. But what the context of that statement was is that I said in the interview with Politico 
that um, you know, it's my hope that there's a Republican who would run as a referendum candidate too, because I think the real opportunity to this idea is if we have a Republican running as a referendum candidate, as a Democrat running as a referendum candidate, if they become the front runners in each primary, then we know we're going to get reform, and the only question is who's the vice president. Um, and after I said that, uh, the, uh, Ben said, well, you know, what about Donald Trump? And I said, uh, you know, if we could get Donald Trump to agree that um, all he's going to do is reform the corrupted system of politics, that would be great. Because I then went on to say the other things that he's talking about, you know, really sickened me. You know, his, his hatred of the hardest working Americans in America, namely immigrants, is, is outrageous to me. And his, his, the way he talks about women uh, is, is disgusting. So, so I, it's not like I like any of that part of Donald Trump. But I was like, sure, if he's going to say this is the only thing he'll do, that's better than what he's talking about right now. Now, that got translated into I'm thinking about a third party run with Donald Trump. But obviously, what I was saying is not that, you know, we'd run together as a ticket, because if we did, like, who would be the president and who would be the vice president? And, you know, there's nothing in what I was saying that answered any of that. So that was just a misunderstanding. And, and um, I've posted something to try to clarify that because um, I agree we got to call Donald Trump out on the craziness but, you know, we got to work. I, I'd work with my worst enemy if working with my worst enemy got us to the place where we could actually fix this corrupted system. Um, or let me say this corrupted, unequal system. Um, with respect to Tom, it, it's a, it was a little bit more difficult to understand. Um, because, uh, you know, Tom and uh, Norm Ornstein have written a really incredible, really fantastic book um, which I talk about a lot in uh, in the new version of, of Republic Lost. Um, um, the book is It's Even Worse Than It Looks, published in 2012. And in that book, um, they make, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic and rich account of just how terrible Congress has gotten. And they spend an extensive amount of time, you know, unpacking the way in which campaign finance drives this, uh, this terrible, terrible outcome. Um, now, they think that the ultimate root is uh, partisanship. Um, and my view, as you know, is partisanship is not a cause, it's a consequence. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you have a world where candidates have to spend all their time raising money and you raise money easiest by calling the other side the devil, then it's kind of hard to turn around and put your arm around somebody and embrace them them as, uh, as your friend to pass legislation. So, so partisanship is a huge problem, but I think it's, it's endogenous to the problem of the way we fund campaigns. Um, but my, you know, after reading their book, I was like, yeah, absolutely. I agree with what they say. So for them, for him to turn around and then say, um, you know, that, um, uh, it's absurd, uh, um, to, uh, to be talking about, um, uh, this, uh, uh, this kind of reform, and to say it's foolish, quote, it is foolish to imagine, um, as they say, um, that reform will dramatically transform the policy process. Um, what I did in this review I published on Medium was to put those words against the words that they put in their book, which was, um, uh, quote, a new framework for campaign finance is a key component for reducing the dysfunction of the American polity. So what was bizarre to me is we go from it's a key component to reducing the dysfunction to it's foolish to imagine it's going to change the policy process. Um, and, and what was frustrating him, I think, is that, you know, this would be drawing attention away from 
what I think Democrats, especially inside of the Beltway, think is the really critical thing, which is for Democrats to win the presidency and, you know, get as many seats in Congress as you can. But I'm, you know, I'm not a partisan Democrat in the sense that I think the most important thing in the world is um, is just winning partisan fights. I, I'm interested in what is the fight that could actually bring about the kind of change that would make it possible for politics to work. Uh, so uh, um, I just don't think another partisan election, you know, not even a partisan landslide uh, election is going to create the predicate necessary to bring about the change that we think we have to, uh, that I think we have to have. Um, so I'm looking for a different strategy that could create the kind of pressure, the mandate to bring about that change. And, um, uh, and that's what I was offering. So, you know, it, it's kind of, it's kind of, it was weird to read a piece saying I'm dumbing down the debate, um, a piece which calls me absurd and foolish, um, because, you know, my own view is um, that's a pretty good way to dumb down the debate, uh, to use language like that. Um, I, I think, you know, what we should be having more of is people talking about different ways to attack this problem, because obviously the issue has been fought over for the last 40 years and things have only gotten worse. Let me uh, turn quickly to uh, two last issues on uh, the campaign itself. One is the Bernie Sanders issue. Um, you've said that uh, you agree with much of what Sanders has to say, but the problem uh, on the issue of campaign finance front, but the problem is it's only one of a number of issues. And I, I, I think that um, uh, means that what you really want is to have this referendum kind of uh, election. And so I want to ask you about your view of the Sanders campaign and also to the extent we're talking about a referendum election and you as a caretaker president or someone else as a caretaker president who would step down, uh, do you think the American people are ready for that? Uh, what if a war breaks out in the interim before Congress moves on the issue of campaign finance reform? Doesn't it mean that you or whoever is the referendum candidate has to be prepared to be commander in chief? Yeah. So first on the Bernie Sanders issue, yeah, um, you know, political leaked a memo that I had written to Sanders because I had been working with Sanders, um, um, helping him develop his strategy here. And in that memo, I basically said, uh, um, look, you know, here's, you know, we're going through all the sort of campaign finance issues. Should we support this amendment? Should we support this kind of public funding? And I sort of gave my recommendations on all of that. But what I said is, you know, that's not really the important question here. The important question is, what are you going to do to make it credible that you can get this change first. Because if you don't get this change first, everything else you're talking about in the campaign is not credible. You know, you can't talk about taking on Wall Street and, you know, having a massive new um, uh, reform package after we've seen the failure of uh, Dodd-Frank um, uh, uh, when Wall Street and, you know, finance, insurance, and uh, uh, real estate is the largest funder of congressional campaigns. It's just not possible. So. What are you going to do to make it convincing that you can actually solve this first? And how are you going to bring the American people around to recognizing we need to solve this first? Um, and of course, they, they haven't, they didn't do that. They didn't change that. Um, um, uh, and, you know, on the day that I announced my run, uh, campaign finance issues were number eight on his list. Um, after I announced the run, they moved to number two, so that's progress. But the point is, it can't just be one of eight issues. It's got to be set about, it's going to be an ordering to it. You solve this issue so that we can solve those other issues. Now, you know, I actually have gone back and forth, and I'm now on the, uh, very pretty firmly on one side, about 
whether an ordinary president actually could solve this issue. In the paperback edition of Republic Lost, I reflect on the fact that, you know, in, in the 2008 election, I was strongly for Obama, and I was very upset that Hillary Clinton would not even talk about this issue, and when she did, she kind of scorned the idea of this issue. But I said that, you know, maybe it was Hillary Clinton who understood something that I and Barack Obama didn't, which is, you know, if you're a president, you come to Washington, and you say, I'm going to take on the corrupt uh, way we fund campaigns, what your chief of staff is going to tell you is you're taking on Congress. And to take on Congress means you're taking on your party as well as the other party. And to take on your party as well as the other party is to guarantee you don't get anything done, even if you get this done. So you'll be a one issue, you know, you'll have one issue you've succeeded on, maybe, and you'll have nothing else you'll succeed on. So therefore, it's going to be incredibly hard for you to get reelected, which means you'll be a failed president. And, and so what I wrote in the book was, you know, it might just be that it's not possible to imagine a normal president in our political context being able to take this issue on and win with it, which when I came back to that thought firmly after engaging with Bernie, um, led me to think, well, you know, at least somebody should try um, this alternative strategy. And, uh, and um, you know, I tried to get other people to do it. I reached out to a bunch of different people. Um, but of course, nobody was as crazy as I was about taking it on. Um, um, okay, so that was that. And you asked another great question. I'm just cue me it was on about the... It was about the... Uh, the being commander in chief, oh, commander uh, in chief. it's going right. to take some time. So, the, yeah. uh, putting you personally aside, the idea of the referendum yeah. president, yeah. Uh, uh, do you think the American people would be willing to take that risk? Well, I think it's a completely fair question. It's exactly what the American people need to ask: Is this the sort of person that I would trust to be commander in chief for however long it took? Um, and is the judgment of this person the kind of judgment that I would trust to be in that in that office? Um, and that's what the campaign's got to be about. You know, it's always about that with everybody. Um, but it's got to be about that in particular with me. And um, and I, you know, happy to be tested on on that uh, with uh, American people so that they can come to a view about um, um, whether I'd be able to do that effectively. I, I have a very different view from others about how long this would have to take, only because I I think that this would be understood uh, this referendum would be understood as something different from the ordinary mandate of a president. And I've talked about how we you know, can roll into this campaign the idea of recruiting and committing representatives up front. So you can imagine even referendum representatives who, um, if they're incumbent or their candidates are not going to take on this issue, they say, look, I'll, I will take on this issue too. And I will, I will do what, you know, if the referendum passes, I'll I'll do what the referendum uh, calls for. So I think there's a strategy to, to minimizing the length of that but there's no doubt there's a period of time when I would be president that I would have to be able to be president in a way that people would trust. Um, there's only one twist to it that's it's it's hard conceptually. I mean, it's easy conceptually to understand, but would make the process a little bit heavier. Which is, I would think of myself as a trustee of both the people and the vice president, um, the trustee of the people to pass the Citizen Equality Act, and the vice president because obviously my objective is to pass the office to that person as quickly as possible. So decisions which are really decisions about the next real administration are decisions that would be made in close consultation with that vice president. It's still my decision, but it's, uh, it's a decision I'd want to make to make it easier for her or for him to serve as president. Um, but independent of that, you know, there is the obligation and the, and the duty of uh, the office, which I need to be able to execute um, as well as anybody else. 
Well, this has been a fascinating discussion, and uh, uh, people can say that they support you or not, but I I certainly think it's true, as you've said in many of your talks, that uh, uh, this comes out of a kind of patriotism and love for country, which uh, I think is is quite admirable, and uh, uh, I think that uh, many people uh, may not agree with your uh, ways of getting there, but certainly they agree with your motivations. And so so I I appreciate you bringing this issue to... uh, to the American public in the way that you have. I appreciate you saying that, Rick. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining us, and uh, uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk again soon. Thanks. The ELB podcast is supported by the University of California at Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. The technical producer of the ELB podcast is Jared Hassenklein. The theme music is the composition Jazz by the band Beat FN, used under Creative Commons license. Join us next time for the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassan. Goodbye.